Well, good morning again. Uh, forgot to introduce myself. I'm Pastor Chris. For those of you who don't know me, um, we're going to be returning to our series in John and um, starting in John 19 and kind of looking, looking through it from there. But just to kind of catch up, I know it's been a while since we've, we've been in the book of John that uh, the, the point of John, the theme of John all along has been that Jesus is the promised Christ and the Son of God uh, that all, and that all, he offers eternal life to all who believe in him. Jesus is the promised Christ and the Son of God who uh, offers eternal life to all who believe in him. So believe in Christ, experience eternal life, experience that right here, right now, and then experience that with God forever. And so I know it's been a while, so let's go back. We've had the farewell discourse, which was Jesus taking uh, a chunk of time with just his disciples on that last night to prepare them for life without him in a world that's going to be hostile. And the primary uh, way that he was going to equip them to do that, he was going to send this other helper, someone to take his place in the life of the disciples and to take his place in the ministry to the world. And that was going to be the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And, and then we went into his arrest on that night, and it showed John's perspective on that was that Jesus was in sovereign control of that. And so he, he, he spoke, and all the soldiers fell to the ground. And as they stood back up, he made sure to, to defend and protect his disciples so that his disciples were let go and they weren't caught up in the arrest. They, they put this sham of a trial on all night long before the Jewish council. And uh, so throughout that night, they questioned him. They sought false witnesses against him. They had all these people contradict themselves. Uh, but they finally came up with a charge that they hoped would stick. And in their mind, it was blasphemy. In their mind that he was the king and that he was the Christ was religious blasphemy and it, it couldn't stand. But they realized like the Romans don't care much for religious stuff and they really don't care what the Jews think or what their law is. And so they had to package the charge in a way that would force Pilate to make the decision they wanted. And so um, they turn over that Jesus was uh, an insurrectionist, that he was claiming to be king. And anyone that claims to be king who's not Caesar becomes a problem for the Roman Empire. And Pilate tried as hard as he could to get Jesus out. He tried as hard as he could to let Jesus go. But they manipulated the situation in such a way that in order to rescue Jesus, or in order to let Jesus go, even though he was innocent and, and had no guilt, would, would put him at odds with Caesar. And so they forced his hand. But in the process, what they also did is the Jewish people walked away from God under the government of Rome that they hated so bad because they would not let Jesus be their king. And instead they cried out, we have no king but Caesar. And instead they cried out, his blood be on our heads, his blood be on the head of our children from there. And with that, we, we lead now to the moment of the cross where God's sovereign plan is walking itself out and Jesus is embracing as a faithful son that plan. And we are going to see a moment of maximum shame. We're going to see a moment of maximum pain. And we're going to see a moment of glorious salvation. Look at uh, John 19 with me as we, as we walk into it. John 19, 16 through 27. And so Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. And so they, the soldiers, took Jesus and bearing his own cross, they went out to the place that is called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And they crucified him with two other men, one on each side with Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription, and he placed it onto the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, many of the Jews saw this, for the place they crucified him was near to the city 
And he wrote it in Aramaic and he wrote it in Latin and he wrote it in Greek. And so the chief priests and the Jews came to Pilate and said, don't write king of the Jews. Instead, write that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And so Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided it into four parts, one for each soldier and his tunic also. But the tunic was seamless and it was woven in top to bottom uh, in one piece from top to bottom. And they said, let's don't tear this. Instead, let's cast lots to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture that they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers, they did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary of Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and he saw the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mom or your mother. And so from that hour, he took her to his own home. Let's pray and then let's jump into this story. So, Father, help us to see with fresh eyes the absolute horror of the moment in front of us in the text. The darkness, the evil, the shame, the despising, the suffering. But let us... Not stop with horror. Let it turn to worship as we gaze on your glory. As we gaze on the death we deserve. As we gaze on the horror and the shame that is rightfully ours and our condemnation. And we see it killed there in the death of your son. And we see our life there because the innocent one died for us. Please help us see it, God. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we walk through the text, let's look back through this story. It says they took him, and uh, that's likely the soldiers took Jesus. And this is where we believe the second beating of Jesus happened, the more severe beating, uh, which would be called a scourging. And so literally two soldiers would beat on a, a prisoner until their arms wore out with a whip that had bones and metal pieces in it. And they would take basically every shred of flesh off of the back during this process. There'd be massive blood loss. The person would be very weakened in their condition. And so they, they took him and they scourged him in this moment. And then they gave him the cross to carry. And so it wouldn't be the whole cross, right? That would be too much. It was the cross piece of the cross. And they would place it on the, on the shoulders. And they would have to, the condemned person would have to walk to the place of punishment. And what that would do is it would maximize the shame of the moment as there would be crowds jeering and mocking every step along the way. And it would maximize the deterrent effect that this would have also. Like, hey, if you're thinking about doing something like this, you may end up like this guy and you don't want to do that. But to maximize the shame, we'd carry his cross. But you may have read some of the other gospel accounts. And that's one of the things I want to do is put together different gospel accounts uh, to give the bigger picture. And so you might have read like there, that the Romans commanded this guy, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross of Jesus. Well, there's no conflict here. Jesus has been awake all night, tried all night, beaten twice now. He's this swollen blade pole. His, his, his back is shredded. And so leaving the garrison where, where all this happened, he's got the cross piece. And he walks as far as he can walk to some point in the city, possibly the edge of the city, and he just gives physically out. And when he gives physically out, uh, they, they grab this guy, stick the cross piece on to finish the journey. And so uh, the accounts are, are compatible in that, in that sense. And they go all the way to the place of the skull. Maybe it's likely a a hill outside the city that had been weathered to look kind of resemble a skull. 
And in Aramaic, that's called Golgotha. But if you notice, like some of our songs will have Calvary in them, right? Uh, so what is that? Like Golgotha is the Aramaic word for skull. Calvary is the Latin word for skull. And so if you hear both of those names or if you hear them in songs, it's all talking about the same place, uh, this place of the skull. And they get there and they say, there they crucified him. Like to us, we just read that as a simple sentence. But what we want to do is let's see behind that because the average reader would have seen crucifixions take place. The average reader of the New Testament, they would know exactly what's meant by that word. And so the Romans were masters of domination. They were masters of humiliation and they were masters of inflicting pain. And when they invented the cross, they invented the pinnacle of all of those things. Right. And so they would have this walk of shame from the place of of the trial to the place of the crucifixion, carrying the cross with this bloody beaten pulp going up to it. And then they would get there and they would lay the, the, the cross piece down on the ground and they would lay the person across that beam and they would either tie with ropes the arm to the cross or they would tie and they would nail through the wrist part, not the hand but the wrist part, and they would nail these, you know, six-inch spikes through uh, the hands. They would overlap the feet, and they would nail through the feet, or they would tie the feet, and then they would put this little perch underneath. Now, that was not a merciful perch. It was designed so that the prisoner would struggle longer as they push up against that perch, that they would struggle longer, and the longer they lived and the longer they fought to survive, the more pain they would have to endure to get there. And so the way crucifixion works is you are stretched out in such a way that when you slump down, all of this collapses and you basically suffocate. And so in order to catch breath, you would have to push off the nails in the perch in your feet. and You'd have to push off the nails in your hand to get straightened up enough to breathe and catch your breath. And then you slump back down and you suffocate and you go up and breathe and you go down and you suffocate. and You go up and breathe and you go down and suffocate. And this wasn't a short process. The Romans designed this while you're sitting on a cross exposed to the sun, naked except for your underwear for all to see. And they designed this to last days on end, right? Hours would be best case scenario, but generally it wasn't hours. It was a day to multiple days. A person with a shredded back with no skin left on their back goes up and down a rough wooden cross, struggling to breathe, suffocating, struggling to breathe, suffocating for days. Maximum shame, maximum pain. They crucified him. They crucified him there for days. And that's why, like, when, it, when he finally dies, Pilate's shocked, right? Because he's like, he shouldn't be dead yet. And so they go to test it, and they, they have the spear. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But um, some Gospels will in, in, emphasize suffering more. Some will emphasize, like John, this is the plan of God, and this is the faithfulness of the Son to finish up that plan uh, so with that, we move on to like, which one are we, right? Really great movies suck you in and you become one of the characters or you observe the characters. And so like you're watching a great movie and who do you identify with, right? Do I identify with the hero? Do I identify with the villain? Do I identify with the sidekick? Like who would I see myself in this? And really great stories suck you in that way. Well, I want to suck you in to identify with these characters, Right, and so uh, we, we go on, it says he, he was crucified with two men. And this, these two men become this very interesting progression throughout the day as we put the Gospels together. 
And so we have two criminals on either side of Jesus. All the while, there's these crowds that are mocking and shaming Jesus, like, oh, you're going to build the temple back in three days. Why don't you save yourself if you're the son of God? Hey, if God loves you so much, why don't you call out to God for deliverance? If he's so happy with you, why didn't he come and save you? And like they're mocking him, and they don't realize what they're saying. They don't realize if he came down to save himself, he would condemn the world with it. Right? But they miss that. And these two criminals are on either side of Jesus saying the same thing, shouting these things at Jesus, right? And so as you look at Matthew 27, both of them joined in. But then as you go to Luke 23, we find a change happening. And you've got one man, by the way, the, the, the crimes that these men are charged with are the same words that are used for Barabbas. And so likely what is happening is that these three men were part of the same insurrection. They were part of the same kind of guerrilla warfare plot to throw off Roman oppression, to rescue the people from, from Gentile captivity. And so they were part of the same plan, and they were meant to be crucified together. But Jesus took the place of the middle one. He took the place of, of Barabbas. And so these two men are there. One of them keeps saying, like, you're the Christ. Rescue yourself and rescue us. Now, what does that mean? It's like, you're the Christ. It's your job to liberate the people of Israel. It's your job to throw off Roman oppression. We were, we're here because we wanted to throw off Roman oppression. We're here because we started a riot to try to, to try to do that. Save us. That's your job, Christ. And the other one, a progression happens in Luke 23. The other one rebukes this disciple and he makes a couple of statements that show that, that, that he's starting to gain an understanding. And the statement he makes is, uh, first, we're guilty and deserve, and deserve our condemnation. Right? So he acknowledges his own guilt. He acknowledges that this punishment is a punishment he earned, that they are, that they are guilty and that they are condemned and that condemnation is rightful. And then the second statement that he makes, though, is, Jesus is not. Jesus is innocent. Jesus did not do anything. Jesus does not deserve the same punishment that we have. Which then turns this man from where he is to turning to Jesus to say, Jesus, have mercy on me, right? Remember me. Have mercy on me. I deserve this, but could you remember me when you get to the kingdom? And so what he's acknowledging is, I realize you're the Christ, but it's a different kind of Christ than we thought. I realize you're a king, but it's a different kind of king than we thought. I realize you have a kingdom, but it's not the kingdom we're about to die for. It's a different kind of kingdom. Would you remember me when you get there? Would you have mercy on me when you get there? And this this criminal, this guerrilla warrior who is not baptized, who does not do one act of good work except for die beside Jesus. Here's what Jesus says to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. The mercy of Jesus is granted to him. The kingdom of Jesus is granted to him. And so which character in the story do you see yourself with? You know, yes, I want to ask that question in a saving sense, right? Which character are you? Are you someone who realizes their guilt, realizes there's a condemnation, realizes there's a death penalty for your crimes, and though you realize, I deserve it? That's what we call conviction of sin. His Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and your separation from God. And then have you turned to Jesus and what in faith, have you turned to Jesus and said, please remember me, please have mercy on me, please forgive me? And if you have... There's a paradise that awaits you and there's an eternal life to be lived right here and right now. Have you done that? Which character are you? But there's another way I want to ask that question of you and I want to ask that question of me. Criminal number one wants a worldly deliverance. 
He wants a political deliverance. He wants a circumstance deliverance, a relationship deliverance, an external deliverance. That's what he's living for, and that's what he's going to die for. And the second one wants mercy. He wants a spiritual deliverance. He wants to be right with his God. He wants to know God. Which one are we? Am I more concerned that my circumstances change? Am I more concerned that the virus is gone? Am I more concerned with my physical safety? Am I more concerned with the political situation in America? Am I more concerned with the economic situation in America? Or am I consumed with my need for mercy and Jesus is pouring out of his mercy in my life? Which kingdom do I live for? Which deliverance do I want? Which Christ do I long for? Which one are you? And then as we keep going through the story, they crucified him, and there's two people, and then there's this inscription that Pilate writes, uh, and, and John is so good at making the simplest of statements have all these complex layers attached to him. And so Pilate writes this statement, Jesus of Nazareth, who the person is, and then the charge, king of the Jews. Now, that was completely normal. They did it for every crucifixion. They would wear it around their neck as they walked to the place of the, of the crucifixion. And it would be part of this walk of shame so that, and this deterrent effect. Like, hey, you, if you're thinking about doing what this guy did, you may end up this way. And so the charge would be there. And then they would nail it to the cross as, as part of the sentence. And so on one hand, it's very normal. But then it's also... Pilate is sticking his thumb in the eyes of the Jews his last time. Like, he has been manipulated into the situation. He did not want to get to this place. And he realizes these Jews have gotten, or these Jewish leaders have gotten him, and they've tricked him, and they've manipulated him. And so one last thing he can do on the way out of the situation is he can stick his thumb in their eyes. And that's what he does. So look what he does. Like, here's the king of the Jews. Like, you are such a pitiful people that your king is broken, swollen, bruised, bloodied, dying on our Roman cross. And this is the greatest figure you've got because that pitiful figure represents this pitiful nation that you are. And so Pilate is trying to make a religious statement and he's trying to make a national statement of dominance over the, uh, over the Jewish people who forced his hands. But there's one more layer. Throughout John, people have said far more than they understood. Caiaphas, the high priest, said, isn't it better for one man to die for the nation? Oh, yes, it is. It is better that Jesus died for the sins of the world than that he lived. Yes, it is more expedient. And then here, king of the Jews. Oh, Pilate, if you only knew what you were writing. If you would only bow to this king and not Caesar, there would be this life that would be given to you and this eternal life that would be given to you. Yes, he is the king of the Jews. And so from God's vantage point, yes, he's a king. From God's vantage point, this is a throne of glory. This is not an instrument of shame. And so one author put it this way. Jesus turns this instrument of torture into a throne of glory because Jesus reigns from the tree. Was there great shame? Yes, his nearly naked body hanging on a tree, mocked by everyone around him. Was it maximum pain? Yes, as he agonized with no flesh on his back, up and down on a wooden cross. Maximum pain. But it's also maximum salvation. It is so great a salvation that is happening on this tree. And so it is shame, it is suffering, and it is all about salvation. And so, does he, he writes, king of the Jews. And as that happens, obviously the Jews see it. It's very near to the city. Um, and, and it's written in all of the different languages of, of the known world at the time. 
Uh, and the Jews see that, and they're like, don't write that. Instead, write, he claimed that. And Pilate's like, no, I wrote what I wrote. And so one other feature, Jesus is the king from God's vantage point. He has been installed by God, and he is saving his people. But it's not just the Jewish people, right? At his birth, he will be given the throne of his father, David. And when he's given that throne, it will be a throne that uncovers everything for all time. And it won't end in distance, and it won't end in time ever. And one of the ways that, that John kind of nods to that fact is he, is he tells us that it was written in all the known languages of the time. Aramaic was the language of the Jewish people. Latin was the language of law and the language of the, the soldiers. And then Greek was the kind of universal language of the kingdom. He's the king of the empire, of the nations. And as we continue on through the story, uh, we find these soldiers. And man, these soldiers miss it. Right? Uh, back when we were allowed to go out to restaurants and sit at tables, every once in a while, you know, to be hanging out with some, some friends or hanging out with my family, and you'd look over and you'd see this group of students, whatever age, right? It didn't matter from start to finish. And you see this group of students, like 10 or 12 of their, uh, of their friends hanging out. And what is every single one of them doing? Texting the people that aren't there. Like you're here with your best friends. You're here with where you're here with the people that you can have community with. And, and they're totally missing it. Why are they missing it? Because they got a phone in front of them. And I do that same thing. So it's not just them. We miss what's in front of us. We miss what's around us because we're stuck in this thing. And so how many times have you been stuck in the business of life, the busyness of life, or the distractions of life and missed God in the process? Missed an encounter with Jesus in the process, because that's exactly what these soldiers do. Right above them is the groaning agonies of the Savior of the world while they're looking at the dirt for the clothing and the articles of clothing that he has so that they can gain the business of either having these to use or having these to sell. And that was a very normal practice. Like for us, it's very unseemly, right? You, you didn't even wait for the body to get cold, we might say. But for them, they've just horrendously brutalized this guy. They've stuck him on the cross. And now all their little side hustle is when somebody is crucified, they get the personal effects to divide among themselves. And so the soldiers would be able to divide up and they stick his clothes into four piles. And they say, you take this pile and I'll take that pile. And then they come to this, this tunic, which would kind of be the, the, the clothing closest to the skin. Now, it wouldn't be like underwear. It would be the nicest garment that he actually had. And it was woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they're like, let's don't tear that up, man. Let's, let's, let's cast lots. Let's play a game. Let's gamble to see whose it's going to be. Now, that fulfills the details of God's plan. We'll see it in a second. But look what they're doing. They're staring at the dirt in front of them to get some rags, some filthy rags from Jesus, some sandals and a belt and a robe and like this business they have. And then they go and play this game to see who's going to win the rest of it. And salvation is hanging above them. Now, one of them gets it in the end. If you read Luke, did you know that? Like one of them gets it in the end. And when Jesus dies, he's like, that must be the son of God. But in the moment, they miss it. They miss it playing their games. They miss it with their business. They miss it with their busyness. Now, again, this was to fulfill the scripture, it says. And, and again, John is concerned with the sovereign plan of God working out and Jesus faithfully obeying that plan. And so I'm going to read just a few portions of, of Psalm 22. And that's where this is quoted from. But there's like four or five things in Psalm 22 that are, the fulfill, or, or that are prophecies or, or indications of Jesus' death. They get tied back into. And so uh, in Psalm 22, it starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
By the way, Jesus is going to quote that on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let God rescue him, for he delights in him. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is hundreds and hundreds of years before the cross comes into existence. They have pierced my hands and pierced my feet. I can count all my bones. And then listen, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Hundreds of years before a thing called a cross ever exists, Jesus will quote parts of this psalm. He'll quote parts of the psalm later. And these soldiers doing what every soldier does for every crucifixion fulfill this prophecy that the kind of death was going to involve this distributing, this, this, this game to take clothes. And so as we move forward in the story, I want you to think about this. What on this earth, what on this world is taking your gaze and locking it down so that you miss God? Is distracting your gaze so that you're looking at the dust of this earth and the things of the world and you're missing everything else that's around you that really matters? Missing God and encounters He want to have with your life. Because the soldiers are busy in a business. The soldiers playing games to distract, and they're missing it. Now, as we move forward to this last phase of the story, um, we move on from the soldiers, but John very intentionally attaches the soldiers in contrast to this other group, this last group we're going to meet. And so it says the soldiers did these things, right? And so the soldiers brutalized him. The soldiers were merciless. The soldiers were callous. The soldiers were completely distracted. I don't care what kind of groans happen up there. I've heard it all before. I've got business to take care of. They did these things, but, and that's a word for a strong contrast, but there's this other group, this group of devoted followers, and they were not brutal. They were heartbroken. They were not merciless. They were grieving to the pit of their souls. Right? They weren't distracted. They were locked into every moment of what they're experiencing. And they were not merciless. They weren't about some business. They were devoted. The last mile they could walk with their Savior, the last mile they could walk with their friend, the last mile they could walk with their teacher and their master, they are walking. No matter how horrible it is, no matter how agonizing it is to see him on that cross, the last thing we can do for Jesus is we can be there till the end. And then we can bury him. And so there are those that are standing beside, fulfilling their last, oblig- or their last duty, Their last act of devotion for their Lord. They're going to walk with him to the threshold of death and they're going to take care of his body. So they're standing beside the cross of Jesus. And who was it? It was his mother and it was his aunt, his mother's sister. It was Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And so there is debate whether this is two women, three women or four women. Just for simplicity's sake, we're going with four. Jesus' mom, Jesus' aunt, Mary who's married to Clopas and Mary who's Mary of Magdalene. Uh, so these four women are there, and John, the, the beloved disciple. And that's it. Or there may be a couple of others scattered out, but those are the ones that are listed. And they're willing to walk this last mile with Jesus to the end, and to be part of this to the end, to identify with him to the end. And Jesus, in this moment, 
seeing these few little devoted disciples left so that he doesn't die alone, looks and he sees his mom. Now, as he sees his mom as the firstborn son, it is his job to care for her as a widow. It is his job to provide for her as a widow. And so Jesus been awake all night. Jesus has been beaten to this sheer bare resemblance of himself. Jesus, who is hanging on the cross, agonizing that every breath he takes. Jesus isn't just worried about Jesus in this moment. Jesus sees his mom. And he's like, how can I take care of my mom? How can I provide for my mom? How can I make sure that continues to happen when I'm gone? Now, Mary, I'm going to go back a bit. Mary in Luke chapter 2 is with Joseph, and they've just had Jesus. And they run into a guy near the temple named Simeon. And Simeon says this, this child, it's one of the five, servant, or five songs that happen of, of Jesus in that birth of, as recorded in Luke. And Simeon says, this child will be destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And a sword will pierce through your soul also. So what is he saying? He's saying, we have just met the child who will be destined for the fall of many. There will be people who reject him. Most people will reject him. There will be people who hate him and despise him. There will be people that mock him, but it will be the fall of them. And as a nation, because we, because we will reject Jesus, because they will reject this Messiah, as a nation, they will fall. They will be crushed. Oh, but there will be some. There'll be some who rise. There'll be some who believe. There'll be some who follow. There'll be some who have a relationship with God through this child. But it won't come without a personal cost, Mary. The salvation of the world comes with a sword for your heart. And that's what's happening in this moment. Now think about Mary, 13 years old. By the way, you're going to be pregnant out of wedlock. 25-ish years old with four or five kids on a carpenter's salary, she becomes a widow. And now at 45, she is watching her son swollen, beaten, agonizing and suffering. A sword will pierce your soul, Mary. This is the cost of salvation, Mary, is you're going to stare at your son's death. And so a woman who bears scars is now being pierced. And Jesus... While saving the world, is still concerned with the heart. And he looks at Mary and he looks at the disciple who he loves, which we know of as John. We'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in the future. This disciple he loves, and that's not a statement of pride by John. I'm loved more than everybody else. It's a statement of identity. I'm identified by the love Jesus has for me. That's how I want to be known to the world. I'm someone Jesus loves. And so he looks at his mom and he looks at his disciple and he says, in very legal adoption formula, woman, behold your son. You're bound to him. More than that disciple, behold your mother. It's now your job to take my place to care for her. It is now your job to take my place in providing for her. And so why, though? Like, you know, Mary had other children. The, the question and the debate is why John? And I'm going to give you two possible answers, but we don't know. Possible answer number one is spiritual. At this point, not one of Jesus' brothers has believed in him. They've rejected him and they've mocked him. See John chapter 7. They've come to get him because they thought he was crazy. But they've never believed. And so there is possibly a spiritual answer to this. 
I want my mom taken care of by someone who loves me. I want my mom taken care of by someone who, who has believed in me and has followed me because that's the person that's going to be able to offer hope and perspective when all this is over. Or the other one is possibly just a simple logistical reason. Right? His brothers and his sisters are up in Galilee in the northern part of Israel, and Mary's here. And Mary is going through trauma, and the trauma she is experiencing watching her son die, she needs somebody to just take care of her for a while to get her through the, the, the shock and the horror of this moment. And then at that point, she may transition back to her family. We don't know. We, we don't know the answer. But those are two po- strong possibilities that we can wrestle through. But in each of these, you get this glimpse of the heart of Jesus he is, he is committed to carrying out his duty as a son, as a firstborn son of care and provision. But that's way too mechanical. He is also looking at, and for the, the first step, and the only step he can take for the sword that's going to pierce her heart because of his mission, the only step he can take to begin to mend that is to pair her with someone who will take care of her. Pair her with someone who will provide for her in his place. And he is beginning the process of restoring Mary's soul, of restoring Mary's heart right here in this moment. He's not just concerned with saving the world. He's also concerned with mending hearts. He's not so busy on a cross saving the world that he can't stop and consider the people in front of him. And it's, it's this great resemblance of God who is all-knowing. And it's not as if he's got so much going on in the world with a global pandemic that he can't take care of you and he can't listen to you. Right? Jesus is in the pierced heart mending business. And that's what we see as this begins to close out. And so a few practical things as we, as we wrap up. First, embrace the crucified Christ. The cross is about salvation. Yes, look at it and be horrified. Yes, look at it and see shame. Yes, look at it and see pain and suffering and all the gruesome details attached to that. But then look at it and worship. Look at it and see salvation. And so have you ever come to the place where you realize I'm guilty? I'm separated from God. I deserve his punishment. I deserve his condemnation. And you've been convicted of your sin. Have you ever come to the place where he, you've seen Jesus in and you turn from your sin and you turn from your self-rule and you saw Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus alone to save you? Have you ever come to that moment? Embrace the cross. It is that great a salvation. It's that costly a salvation. Embrace it. Have you been wanting a political savior, a genie, a circumstance changer? Embrace the cross where you'll meet a shamed and a broken savior with a salvation that is eternal. The second thing, meditate on suffering and on glory of the cross. Meditate on the suffering and the glory of the cross. You see, we change by beholding. We change by worshiping. By seeing and being changed. And so gaze at the cross, right? Look at the horror and be horrified. Look at the shame and be horrified. And then look at the salvation. Stare at the salvation. Gaze at the salvation that comes. That's how change happens. Look at the cross and be like, it says shame off of me. Not because I deserve it. I do deserve shame. But shame comes off of me because he bore it. Sin comes off of me because he 
for it. And if you'll stare at the cross long enough, it'll change you. If you stare at the cross and see shame has been taken out of my life because of the work of Jesus, no matter what the work of people has done to me and no matter what my own life has done, the shame has been taken off of me because of the work of Jesus. And when I see my sins are forgiven, it will change me. When I see that he's dying my death, it will change me. And so stare at the cross. Meditate on the cross. Both its horror and its glory. Both its shame and its salvation. And then lastly, share the crucified Christ. Share the crucified Christ. We saw in our devotion this week. I hope you're following along with that. We saw in our devotion on Thursday as we introduced the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus' ministry looked like. He proclaimed the gospel. He shared the gospel. He taught the gospel. And he healed the sick. He shared the gospel and he showed the gospel. He shared the kingdom and he showed the kingdom. And he's given us a ministry like that. Where we go into the world and we extend mercy. We extend the alleviation of suffering. We extend being beside people to comfort them when suffering comes into their life. And we share. We do word and we do deed. And so share the crucified Christ. Do it now, right? Share your Jesus changed my life story. Invite people to watch these live streams that may not ever come to church with you, but they'd be willing to watch this, this video or, or this, this service as, as we go through it. Prayer walk. Make your five calls. Find ways to share the crucified Christ. The cross is meant to maximize shame and suffering, and it did it. But it could not hide glory in the process. Our shame and our suffering were nailed there so that our salvation could come out of there. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that people's eyes would be opened and death would become life and lost would become found and darkness would become light. I pray that people maybe didn't even intend to be part of this, God, that you drew them in or you placed this in front of them. God, that you would awaken in them faith. That you would bring them from conviction and death to life and forgiveness. And God, I pray for everyone whose soul has been pierced. God, with little swords or big ones, with little pains and with massive ones, that they would see in this that there's a suffering and there's a healing. That there's a Savior who cares for salvation and cares for mending and restoring. God, would you do that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And now I leave you with this blessing. May the Lord make you to increase and abound in love for one another. So that you may he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. With that, I leave you.